0: This will be our final episode of Season 1 of Lantern. It's been an absolutely amazing ride and we've been so fortunate in hearing from a range of incredible guests. But we're looking forward to bringing you all an even bigger and better Season 2 of Lantern in the second half of 2018. In the meantime however, we're going to need your help. We would love to hear from you about what you liked about the show and how we can improve. We have also have a fair trade gift pack to give away and all you need to do is complete our survey to be in the draw and we promise that the survey will take less than five minutes. You can find the survey at bit.ly forward slash lantern underscore survey. Once again, bit.ly forward slash lantern underscore survey.
1: Not everybody has done the, like, and it's, I don't think we're the only ones, but not every program has gone through how do we align this into a school curriculum? How do we align this with what's actually happening in a, in the life of the school and also the life of the community. We've worked really hard to do that because we think that's really, really important. But I've seen other programs that come in that look great on paper, but the kids don't get that many outcomes out of it. And it's a real shame um, that students are spending time in that type of environment that actually may be missing out on their normal classes. So it'd be really great to look at how we test programs before they go into schools and then be able to support those programs that are kicking real goals um, to make sure they can create the impact that they could be doing.
0: That was Adam Mostogel, founder of Illuminate Education and Consulting, an organisation dedicated to empowering young people through delivering practical workshops in entrepreneurship within primary schools and high schools across the nation. My name is Regan Quick and this is Lantern, a podcast about young people trying to change the world and trying to understand what that actually means. As soon as I started to read about the work that Adam was doing with Illuminate Education, the immediate thought that popped into my head was that I wish my high school would have brought Adam in, because I could only begin to imagine the impact his workshop could have had on myself and my friends. And also, I think, given our own experiences within the education system, its I think it can be quite easy to get trapped in a particular mindset of how an education system should look like. Having external organisations and community members come into the education system, at least for me, felt like a strange thought, but Adam really did prove that it provides immense value to students. Also, as you have probably already heard in our introduction, we did have a bit of an issue with our recording, and unfortunately Adam's track has a bit of an echo. For about the first five minutes of the episode, the echo is quite noticeable, but please do hold on because it dulls down as the episode goes on And Adam has some really interesting things to share that we don't think you should miss out on. Now, we hope you enjoyed our chat with Adam as much as we did.
1: So my name's Adam Ostogel. I guess my job title is founder and inspirer of Illuminate Education and Consulting. But I guess, yeah, I'm just someone who likes to get things happening and help those out who really need help I'm very active in my community serving on community boards and trying to make things happen because again I just don't want to see people miss out my sort of big passion is all around potential I see people's potential time and time again Uh, and unfortunately not everybody has the opportunity to I guess exploit that so that's my real passion is to help people fulfill their full potential and, uh, and live out the things that they want to achieve because they can do incredible things in this world. And uh, I don't want to be someone who blocks people, but rather would be someone who'd rather support them to make those great things happen.
2: No, fair enough. It sounds like you've got a lot of passion about what you do. So I guess my question is, where did that passion come from? Uh, what part in your
1: uh, formative years was instrumental? Yeah, I don't know if there's actually a single point in time that you can say that I was, I sort of switched from being, I guess, not interested to being interested in trying to drive change. I think, uh, yeah, as I sort of have gone through things and seen opportunities, it's kind of like, wait a minute, there's a gap there and nobody's doing anything there. So maybe I might be that person. Uh, and I think that's sort of been my journey the, the whole way through, is that I've sort of found opportunities to say, wait a minute, this shouldn't be like this anymore, and what can I do to change that? So, uh, yeah, it's really, really hard to sort of go, wait a minute, that's the day or that's the time. I feel like it's just kept on evolving, and, and as it keeps evolving, new things keep presenting itself, and I go, wait a minute, I might have to do something there too.
0: Cool. Fantastic. Well, did you find that you had that similar mindset back in high school or was that something you really developed at uni or was it just something that just, as you said, came out of nowhere one day?
1: Uh, I don't think I had no, it at high know, school. I was—I would call myself one of those lazy, of those lazy students, students that knew, that knew what amount of work I needed to do needs, to get through, so I kind of so did kinda that. that. Um, so, so I feel like I, feel like like I was like always like that, liked that, that until, uh, until I was involved in a, a business called, competition, you know, competition where we came in a, first in Australia and second in the world by like 0.5%. And I was like, wait a minute, that's what happens when I put in a bit of effort. So I feel like I'm still running on that energy now. Um, that I didn't um, so use like in my, uh, high, school my uh, high school years. School I am now using, I am using to uh, to, uh, to keep doing to the to things that I'm doing, doing now. So I so feel like that was it. Like that was Uni, it was I did two degrees. I've done architecture, and obviously and I'm obviously not an architect, an architect so, so uh, that sort of didn't go all the way that I thought, but I got great skills out of it. I think probably through that made me look at things differently, so I really sort of value that experience. But I think it was all the community stuff that I just started getting involved in and seeing... I could add value as I sort of I went, went out and did things and volunteered and, and started to realize that some of those things I could do were actually really valued and so kept on going and it sort of, yeah, feels like it's all spiraled from there.
0: So you mentioned, the, of course, the undergrad and architecture. Um, what did you study at a postgraduate level? Was, I think I remember reading somewhere, teaching or education? Was that the case? Or?
1: I've got a master of teaching as well. Um, and so But I started that after I had started my education business. So I think I'd been teaching for a for a couple of years, and then um, and running my programs, and sort of thought that it would add value to uh, to become a qualified and registered teacher as well. And so, I graduated as a teacher, and I'd already taught a thousand students in my own programs. So that was, a, I guess, a, a really exciting thing for me personally to be able to do that. But it added skill sets and knowledge I didn't otherwise have. I've also got a, a certificate for in small business management as well. So I guess that's where all of my business skills comes from. But a lot of the stuff that I do is based on experience, and that's a a big thing for me is how do you actually Get your hands dirty and make things happen and get on the ground and and do them rather than just sort of learn them out of a book and that's that's a way a lot of the way I approach things.
2: Yeah, fair enough. Um, we keep dancing around the topic of what you do. Um, so specifically, like for example, maybe walk us through a day-to-day thing or you know the nitty-gritty of what you actually do.
1: Well, no worries. Yeah, there's a there's a few things that I do, but in Illuminate Education, we teach uh, primary school and high school students how to start their own business and we do them in really short intensive programs. I'm talking about writing business plans, financial models, marketing collateral, pitch decks, and prototyping all in five days. Really sort of running them through the gauntlet and uh, helping them be entrepreneurial and innovative and learn the skills that not only will help uh, people, young people specifically, in um, in starting their own business and, and learning modern techniques like business model canvases and things like that. but some of the, the skills that we're teaching them as well, the skills they need to survive in this modern world where we've got a gig economy that you struggle to find a full-time job, so you've got to juggle a number of part-time jobs. And those skill sets uh, require young... Well, they sort of Those opportunities require young people to be in, uh, innovative and look for opportunities and be creative and be able to solve problems, but obviously be able to manage their own finances and, and manage their own digital presence as well. So there's lots of different elements in that so that's what we do at uh, illuminate education and it's built from uh, i guess just me a number of years years ago starting it to now a team of five and and sort of continually growing and now with a national footprint um which is fantastic but it's not the only thing that i do i'm also uh the community manager of a co-working facility in Launceston um, with one of the first regional cities in Australia to have a co-working space and we now have a 700 square meter co-working space which is really vibrant and exciting things happen out of it. I'm also a subject matter expert for a business advisory service that offers uh, free business advice in our region. So any any business under 20 employees in our region can come to me and get support. I helped start the initiative um, and then sort of transitioned out as, as it's become established and look to uh, find new opportunities. And then, yeah, I'm the Director for Entrepreneurship Innovation and Startup with an organization called Northern Tasmania Development Corporation, which is our regional economic development body funded by councils. Um, I'm trying to think, I sit on the advisory board of the Peter Underwood Centre, which is a partnership between our state government, our university and our three political parties to try and increase education outcomes because they aren't fantastic and so I'm part of the process in making that better and uh, on the executive sponsor group of a really exciting organisation called Inclusive Australia as we try and look at a grassroots community-led action to, uh, I guess, remove all those things from our culture that divide us and help Australia become more socially inclusive because we know it can be so... um, I think that is like in a nutshell all the things that I do. Um, I've probably forgotten one or two things but
2: probably easy with the quantity you've got, but <laughs> Oh
0: okay, yeah, well the, as, you know, there's definitely heaps there and I definitely we need to touch on and illuminate the work you do with those. But before we jump into that uh, big topic, I would love to know a little bit more about the co-working space that you said you're currently sort of working on and that organization. So um, I guess bare basics for people who may not be too familiar with how co-working works, um, how does the space work more generally?
1: Yeah, cool. So we've got um, yeah, two floors in the centre of Launceston. We're one block away from the mall, which is, I guess, the commercial heart. Uh, so, yeah, 700 square metres of space that's basically an, a massive open plan office. Um, we're very sort of strict to the, that sort of co-working mentality where we've got a number of tables where four or five seats around a table, for example, and you might be working there and the next person beside you could be from a completely different organization, but you sort of focus on your own thing, but then there's opportunities to collaborate um, across tables and around the room and out of that builds a community of, of small to medium enterprise and other organizations that are supportive of that, that all look to work together and collaborate um we've got a really thriving small business economy in northern tasmania um we've got four and a half thousand registered businesses in our region and three and a half thousand of them employ less than four people so realistically there's a lot of small businesses in our community a lot of people running businesses from home one or two person operations uh, and co-working offers a great opportunity for those individuals who realistically their co-worker is the only other social interaction they might have during the day face-to-face, they come into a co-working environment that's got a full kitchen, a lounge area, uh, private meeting rooms for, for discussions that you need to have, a boardroom, a training room that can seat 60 people, and then you've actually started to get an office facility that really businesses need as they grow, but I think the exciting thing in being our new space, we've seen a number of businesses scale in the time they've been here, so they're adding one two three people to the table and so they're just hiring the next desk over so it's not like wait a minute i'm i'm growing my team i need to hire a brand new office no you just rent the next table and it's it's really quite cost effective when you start looking at it from that point of view because you get access to the services we've got Fiber to the node NBN here, we've got obviously all your power and your internet uh, is all covered in your cost, you get your your furnitures here, you basically just need to bring your computer in, you're set up and you're ready to go. So it's a really cool way to work, I really enjoy being here, I used to get trapped working at home and uh, you get distracted from everything at home and when you come here you just focus, you tune in on what you need to do but there's other people doing great things and the exciting thing for me for example like with my education business, Um, sort of right behind me where I used to be based, I'm now in a different desk at the moment, but where I used to be based, right behind me was a guy who wrote web platforms for um, employment opportunities across Victoria. So him and I were collaborating because like, even though we're both in Launceston, we're both doing things in Melbourne and in Victoria and we started to go, wait a minute, what can we do together? And I think that's what makes co-working really, really exciting is when you actually start collaborating across organisations to, uh, I guess, to to see what else you can do together and achieve better outcomes.
2: Yeah, look, that sounds incredibly utopian and probably the future. But um, my only question is, what do you do in terms of intellectual property and what happens when sort of two sort of firms that may be competitors or have similar interests but need to monopolize some info? What happens there?
1: Look, we haven't really had that sort of issue. And we find a lot of organisations are focused on their own thing. So that sort of IP issue hasn't sort of come up. And more often than not, when you are collaborating and there is a risk of uh, intellectual property um, and that sort of things, so we always encourage to, uh, to look at an MOU to put some of those things down in paper really early. And the benefit is, is with a number of organisations around the room, they can ask people about that. And so realistically, you've probably got the safer space to ask those questions because you go, wait a minute, I want to make sure this is all okay. And you kind of just ask people over lunch because you've got five or six business, five or six different businesses sitting around the table at lunch, and they can offer that support and guidance. Um, and so that's been really, really um, useful to, I guess, alleviate those risks. Uh, but a lot of, we've actually got a couple of people in the space that probably do very, very similar things, but they focus on different niche audiences. And that's one of the things that we encourage: is that you can either look at how you. Um, cannibalize a local market or we we are really, really focused on building what is Launceston's business community's place in the national ecosystem or even the international ecosystem. And let's focus on that because we actually can play a role in that if we just look at our own community of, what, 70 80,000 people, it's very, very easy to cannibalize. But when we start looking at, wait a minute, no, we're part of the Australian economy or even the international economy, then you do start to focus on what your target audience is, what makes you unique uh, and then really sort of define that and really, um, basically do great things from there.
2: No, I think that's really comforting and you mentioned the signing of certain agreements. So I feel like you do have the appropriate checks and balances in there. Is there anything else that you sort of uh, provide?
1: In terms of the co-working space, it really is about the infrastructure and then building out the community. And that's something that we're really focused on developing further. we are kind of, in a space that we're in, we've been here for six months. Uh, and now we're really focused on building out that community and running sort of lunch and learn events where every second Friday, um, someone from within the community presents something that everybody else should know about. Uh, It's what we term it. And one of the really interesting things is that it might be them professionally, but it might also be personally. We've actually got the general manager of the business advisory service also runs a cider bar. So she's going to run a session on how to choose the booze you like. And it's like, that's, you get around the table, you chat to other co-workers and you start to build that community out. Um, we're always running courses out of the space and that's something that's really exciting is more and more members are taking advantage of that because like we've got the NIECE program run out of here for those who are looking to transition off Centrelink and start running their own businesses. They're actually interacting with the community. So they're doing their training but then coming down and starting to meet people who are running their own businesses and learning... I guess what's really happening as well and collaborating and, and then we're getting opportunity to learn from some of the courses and some of the other opportunities that come through here. Um, which only adds value to those who are here in the space. And the best way to know about it is to be here to hear about it. So, again, that's an, another reason why to be in this collaborative environment then potentially either being on your own at home or being in an isolated office somewhere in the city where you're having to pay for your own kitchen and your own uh, internet and power. And it sort of all piles up for realistically a, a two-person operation. It's, it's, not, it's not a lot of fun. And just,
0: I guess... Touching on sort of the type of businesses in the co-working space, like are they typically, you know, of course, all small businesses and developing, but are they more sort of social enterprises? Are there any non-for-profits? Like, what's the mix of those type of organisations?
1: I think um, the benefit being the only co-working, sp- uh, professional-grade co-working space in Launceston, we have a real mix of uh, people. So we've got architects, engineers, naval engineers, um, business advisory service, obviously my education business, web designers. Uh, i got a guy doing, he's an, actually a NIECE participant. He's just moved in here who's uh, sort of doing breathing training and wellness training, which is really interesting. We've got, um, yeah, the actual... the group that does the Nice training is also based out of the co-working space, a regional economic development agency is based out of here as well. Um, and so it's a, it's a real mix of organisations. So I would say Illuminate is a social enterprise and involved in that. And there are not-for-profits that are based out of here and also looking at basing themselves out of here so they can leverage that community. But Realistically, we're just we're happy to be able to support any type of business that wants to come in. We've had private chefs work out of here. We've had, we had a calligrapher come in here as well, which was fascinating to see. But that's the sort of thing. Like, cause realistically, they just need a desk and a chair. And if that's all you need, like, realistically, there's a whole sort of uh, spectrum of businesses that can benefit from co-working. And we've seen them come in, and it just adds vitality to the community because we start seeing things that we wouldn't otherwise see.
0: And of course, the co-working space addresses such an important um, barrier, I guess, to starting a business. But what do you think, in your opinion, are some other barriers or um, issues to access to resources and tools that people are facing that might suffer from starting a business? In particular young younger people like hmm. yourself?
1: It's the confidence to start. Um, uh, the Business Advisory Service runs a program um, called the Entrepreneur Facilitators which is targeted at helping 18 to 24 year olds uh, start businesses and I helped write that uh, write out what that looked like here biggest barriers is that confidence I don't think I can start a business and realistically you register an ABN you register your business name with ASIC and you go through all the required regulations if you've got council issues but otherwise you're then your own small business person and it's not like it's not a hard process to go through to then start actually going, okay, well, let's start building out what that business looks like. So I think it is that confidence that I can start a business and that and, and maybe a little bit of self-doubt in that process. And I don't think we've got a culture yet that really, really supports young people having a go in business, that we've got a high youth unemployment and a very high youth underemployment across the country. Uh, but the idea of a young person going out and starting a part-time business is not often supported to the way it could be, and the the people that we see through our service and through the space are extremely talented and really have some skills that multiple organisations could leverage. That not one of them is going to be employed full time to deliver those services, but they might actually deliver them sort of to a number of organisations in different ways. And I think that's the. That's, the that's I guess, the exciting opportunity that's there, but the culture needs to support them to go, you can start a business, let's actually do it. We've got a strong small business economy, as I mentioned, to start with, but we don't seem to be strong in supporting the next group coming through, which is uh, something I'm really passionate about changing. Um, we, we had some of those structural problems. There is a, a lack of, of finance, but realistically, a lot of uh, the conversations are around how do you bootstrap an idea? Um, because we're not looking at ideas that need... Twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 worth of funding to get off the ground often. Um, it is often the time and putting a bit of space aside to actually put the hard yards in to make it work. Um, and so that sort of, that finance often comes up, but when you start looking at it and going, wait a minute, how much spare time do you actually have in your calendar and things like that? You start to carve out that you might be able to bootstrap it and then actually self-finance the idea or finance the idea based on your customers' interests and what they're actually engaging with. So... Um, that, that's something that does come up. But uh, the biggest thing is that culture. Um, we do really need to have that culture that celebrates people starting a business. The same way that we might, I don't know, celebrate a, a sporting team going off to compete in a national competition, we don't treat um, small business owners and entrepreneurs the same way. And we do need to celebrate them for having a go and for doing that. Because otherwise, like the rest of the support mechanisms are in the region. Like in, our, in northern Tasmania, you, as I mentioned, you can get your five hours free business advice every year. You can get mentoring support. You can attend training programs. The Van Diemen Project has run over 100 business events in our community this calendar year. So it's not like the support's not there once you want to get started. But sometimes that first step is the thing that's frowned upon. And so we've got to start changing that.
0: And do you think maybe the financial risk of it all takes into place as well? Like, if you don't have a safety net to fall back on and your only business drops out, and maybe, say, your parents can't afford to put you up either, what do you do then? Does it become a pursuit that you can only afford to fail if your parents can support behind you?
1: I think um, a lot of part, I, I see a lot more of the people who are starting uh, part time. So they've got a part time job and then using the rest of the time to make something happen. So they've, already, they've got something they could fall back on too. Uh, and that's it's a chronic underemployment, um, unfortunately, has set up a lot of young people who are working maybe that sort of 10 to 15 hours a week outside of other things. And then they've just got that spare time that realistically is, is time to watch movies or time to go out with friends. And some of them are going, wait a minute, I want to be a little bit more productive and I can turn this around. So I think that, that risk is obviously there. But often when you go through a bit of a measured approach, you go, okay, what do you actually need to put money into and how do we stage this? Um, I don't think that sort of big sort of concern, oh, wait a minute, I'm going to lose everything, isn't there as much. Uh, Services are there to help support. Like I'm now at the process where both my wife and I work in one of my businesses. If it falls over, we're going to have problems. But you build the structure around it and you do what you can to protect yourself in that regard and you can sort of, I guess, mediate some of that risk. And that's where some of that advice and support comes in, whether you get some business advice, you find a mentor that can help you out through that journey, or you come into a co-working space. Um, once you start talking to other people, you start to mature uh, in that process, and you can start putting the right risks and mitigate um, some of those factors. And I think that's a, a really valuable thing for any young person to do. Any person in business actually should do that.
2: Um, do you feel that also you being Tasmanian is Perhaps an advantage, um, because you know you hear the stats all the time. Like for the past eight years, there hasn't been any net job growth, etc., etc. Do you feel like perhaps maybe you have people who have maybe a more entrepreneurial spirit, or might be able to get more help from the local council, etc.?
1: It's an interesting thing. We, we like every other community, is very, very good at tall poppy syndrome. So I think there are people in our community doing good things that don't often get asked to help because it's like, oh no. They've always been here doing those sorts of things. Um, And I think that's that's a little bit unfortunate. We see that from time to time that you start talking to them like, oh, yeah, no, no one's really sort of asked me questions about this. It's like, no, 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 we're going to change that. We've got to change that uh, and start to, to look around with that. Look, being based in in Tassie and being a a local in this region does, I guess, give me that advantage. And and serving on some of the boards that I serve on as well helps me sort of get a better picture of what's actually happening and be able to structure the support not only on a one-to-one basis but also across our region. So, yeah, there are advantages in that um but realistically the we're making sure the doors are open and people can come through and it's it's about basically promoting that opportunity they can get the support and and we do get a number of people that roll through our community especially here at CoWork, that are from other uh, other cities and other states because we just aren't a big enough economy to support them uh and so they come in and support our region and it's fantastic to see that so yeah I, i look I don't think it's a, it's a positive, it's not really a positive or a negative. I'm just, I love this place and I'll keep living here um, as long as the community keeps welcoming me here, I guess, and uh, and keep doing things that I think are, are really, really powerful and need to be done.
0: I think we've definitely covered heaps around the co-working space and we brought up some of the issues associated with like starting businesses. So with that context now, we might as well jump into one of your solutions to it through Illuminate Education and Consulting. So can you tell us a little bit about what the organisation is.
1: To I mentioned, we run intensive education programs in schools. Uh, and so we travel all across Australia, primarily regional communities, which is really, really exciting to go to communities where they don't often get opportunities for program, intensive programs like this and the people come into their community that often um and so that's one thing that we we really enjoy doing because often we find our regional and remote communities the ones that desperately need entrepreneurs to step up and transform the economy or sustain whatever exciting things are happening uh, so to be able to support young people through that is uh is really really great um yeah so gosh as an entity we've got yeah as i said five staff um that that do it i sort of full-time and as the founder Spent a lot of time doing programs. But um, yeah, I think we've got 28-odd programs across Australia this year. And next year looks like we're on track for in excess of 35 programs, which means 35 regions that will be impacting uh, and and helping students in those communities learn how to start their own business. I've personally taught over 4,000 students across Australia how to start their own business um, in these five-day programs. And some of them are in primary school, some of them are in high school. But one of the things that we've really focused on more of late, I guess, as more has come around that innovation boom, as more people are really excited about entrepreneurship and how do we get this into schools, our real priority has been using our business experience that we've got and business experience that I've, I've accumulated over a couple of years, but then also aligning it to education. Our program's fully aligned to the curriculum, so we can tell teachers, wait a minute, not only is this a valuable learning outcome for what the students need in the world, here's those vital curriculum things that your students need to learn anyway and we can actually show it in a really authentic way and i think that's probably part of our point of difference is that we can relate to teachers all but one of our staff are actually registered and qualified teachers um and so can deliver this with a really great uh, i guess understanding of how a school works and we're now starting to deliver professional development training as well to schools um, to help those teachers actually implement more of what we do in the style of learning. So, um, yeah, really exciting um, enterprise in what we do. I guess the other sort of really interesting factor is we actually get no reoccurring government funding to do what we do. Um, so we actually work with corporate partners and leverage either their marketing expense or their community um, CSR sort of budgets. Uh, more often though, marketing student recruitment to actually engage students in a really immersive way so we work with universities um to basically bring students to campus and or bring lecturers out to those schools and show them what universities like break down some of those walls and not only are we then teaching entrepreneurship and teaching those business skills but students are understanding where their future directions could lie and they get sort of i guess emerged um, immersed in that and start to get excited about the opportunity so uh, i think that's been something really exciting as a space to play in is that we're really focused on delivering results for our partners and the students and the schools that we work with so uh, there's a lot to focus on but we've really kicked some goals in that and collect some great data based around what students are students are achieving through the program um, whether it's starting businesses or more often than not we're actually seeing a lot of students that are actually re-engaging with education or changing their perspective and going wait a minute I do actually have a future and it's it's a shame when you deal with students who feel like they don't have a future but when you turn around and you spend a week with them and it starts to blow open their mind about what they can do and their parents are on board and their school's on board, you just go, this is 100% why we do what we do.
0: And how do you go about that process of actually engaging the students, especially if you find that they might be disconnecting from school, disengaging. Like, what's the difference that you can come in, like, suddenly inspire these kids?
1: Uh, it's probably our, our style of learning and the way that we approach it. It's very much based around empowering the students to lead their learning environment. And we give them a real economic problem in their community that we've done research around. Um, and so we understand what's actually happening with the community, but also had a number of conversations with stakeholders in those communities before we arrive. So we know, what what actual things are being talked about around dinner tables oh gosh it would be great if we fixed this or something like that um and so we're finding out those things and actually asking the students to solve them and giving them real information and treating them like adults to actually solve those problems um it's incredible what the students start coming up with once they start experiencing that and then actually treating them like adults and they all call our staff by their first names uh because like there's a bit of respect with that but we also then turn around and say this is what it also means because then we set some pretty sort of uh, high expectations on them and go look we're going to treat you like adults if you can't meet these expectations then like that's your problem not ours Uh, and it's a really interesting to see how students step up to the plate when they don't have bells ringing telling them to go to recess and lunch and when you say all right you need to get this done and you've got a bit of time to do it how do you want to do it and they go well I think I want to do this and it's like you know what that'll get you there go for it you start to see them really switch on and engage because that's and that's realistically how it works when they get into the workplace.
0: Typically, what type of high like schools are you presenting out? Are they mainly private, mainly public, or is it a whole spectrum?
1: Oh uh, yeah, look, our priority is to work with regional communities. I started this year on King Island with forty students, all forty of their high school students, for a week. Uh, they're the types of places we love to go. And I'm going. My next program that I'm doing is in Alice Springs, and then I'm going to Smithton on the the far northwest coast of Tasmania. And I've been to. To places like Dubbo, we've got programs in places like Wyala coming up. Um, so, like, we really like getting into those types of places because they're the ones that really value it. Um, and often, it's a real mix of schools that get involved, public and private schools. We often see um, public schools are probably engaging a little bit more because it's an opportunity that they recognise they can leverage off the experience with us to to maximise their opportunity. Um, I guess private schools probably look at how they can deliver these types of things internally and we have worked inside some schools before around that but uh, often we find public schools it's a really great add-on to their their other subjects and often the schools that we're working with actually don't even have business courses Um, and so we are capable of delivering a majority of the business content they need at their year levels in our short programs that really gets them excited about this opportunity and so some schools actually partner with us by saying we don't deliver business anymore you go to Next gen and you go and, do, you go and do the program and you get that benefit and that's uh, really exciting to see that value from the schools and as I said, mainly it's the, the public schools that really do value that because that means they can focus their limited resources in other ways.
2: Um, fair enough. Um, I just want to say, considering you've been in this for so long, do you have any um, sort of success stories from somebody that you, know, you, you started mentoring in the high school level and is now you know, doing something similar to yourself?
1: So I've seen, like I've seen young people start businesses um, throughout the program. I remember seeing last year a group of three students in New South Wales that came together. The program wasn't around building a, a creative or cultural experience, but the students recognised that was the skill set they all had. So they actually transferred the skills they learnt in the program to start a little creative studio that taught younger kids about dance and drama. And it was really exciting to see that. And they understood that process and I saw them pull out a business model canvas and work on it to actually build out their idea, which was really exciting. Uh, I know of a group of students uh, on the northwest coast in Tasmania who um, actually did it really early in their school years and actually went back and did business studies the next year and were running their own business from the skills they learned at NextGen and had an accountant and a lawyer working for them. But they were still doing the course at school so they could become more knowledgeable. Uh, and they were importing clothing from overseas and selling on a local market, uh, so that was really exciting to see those sort of things happen. Out of it, and uh, often when I return to schools a year later, we start hearing more of these stories, which is uh, a little bit unfortunate that it takes a little while before we hear them. But I guess as I, as I mentioned before, the other side is seeing students change around their learning outcomes. We've seen students have conferences with their teachers and their parents, saying that I want to. I don't want to leave school as early as I thought I was going to leave. I actually really want to make a go of whatever my future could be. I feel like I can make a difference. Um, And I've seen students actually change schools because they felt that the social environment and and everything else that was happening, that they felt that they had to make such a big shift that the parents and schools have supported them actually changing schools to continue with their learning. We've seen students um, at the program start working with the speakers, two or three years later, because we do get speakers from our community to come in and to, I guess, add local knowledge and insights to what the students are learning. And yeah, three years later going, oh, I remember how you ran this program, I came and spoke, it's like, yeah, 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 and it's like, oh, that one of the people in the audience is now working with me. Um, they got so much out of it and they thought us out and they, they're now working with our organisation and and those types of things are really exciting to see that the, the legacy of what the students get out of the program, um, that it really makes a valuable experience. We're now getting to the point that we've seen a number of students uh, in some of the regions we've returned to across Australia for the second year. Students actually offering to come back and getting out of other schools to come back into the schools they used to go to, to mentor and to support students in it, because they basically said, this is the experience that I will remember from school. This is one of the most influential weeks that I was ever part of, and I want to help other students get that experience as well. So, uh, yeah. I think it's, for me, it's a lot more than just starting businesses. This is actually switching on students and, and our education, I guess, definition is to create active and engaged citizens. And I feel like we're really doing that because students actually want to keep learning and want to be engaged and like try and find as many classrooms that are doing that. And that's why we love doing what we do.
2: Um, so I think we should probably transition onto maybe the more overarching issue of edu- education. So why do you think there is a gap in the market that you have to fill, whose responsibility is it that that gap sort of exists? And should that mix be like this where firms like yourself need to exist?
1: For us to play between business and education says that there needs to be something in this space, that that we are an external business where obviously registered and qualified teachers, we've got that educational foundation, but ultimately we are still an organization that connects with the business community and works with what they're doing. Uh, so. I think those, those sorts of things do need to happen because schools are focused on driving their outcomes uh, and there are lots of requirements on teachers and schools to be able to just do the things that basically keep the doors open and, and make sure schools stay accredited, which is unfortunate that, that teachers do get bogged down in that. And that's But that's on the flip side, an opportunity for us to support them to go, well, let's bring these types of programs in and let's leverage our expertise because is every teacher in every school going to understand how small business operates no that that's really really unrealistic but we can be a partner come in deliver some learning deliver some understanding and then the school can keep doing what they do so i think that's that's something that's really important and we've got to look at how we leverage that better in schools that there are opportunities for experts to come in in educationally relevant ways, not just having random speakers coming through day in, day out because it gets kids out of class, but uh, really important, valuable learning outcomes that the community can be part of because the community wants to be engaged in education. This is something that I'm seeing more and more. They just don't know how to do it. Um, And so we offer a mechanism for them to do that. And so sometimes we're coming in by community organisations and getting their whole community to come into a school in a way that they've never done before, but that community is so engaged in learning and wants to be part of that process. So, um, yeah, I think it's probably, yeah, sort of an answer around an answer, but I think there will always be a need for organisations like this because I see that we're not sitting here doing something that... I don't look at it as going, schools should do this. I feel like we're actually a really Mm. support partner to schools to deliver something they may not otherwise be able to do. Um, And I think there should be more organizations and more support for players in this space that can create outcomes that schools might not be able to do within their own boundaries and within the limited time and resources they've got, then so how can we, um, I guess, add value to that process and ensure kids get a better outcome and and believe in a better future?
2: And I think that segues quite well because you mentioned the lack of consistent public support for your business. So... If you were to, you know, you had the power to influence the education system or add some reforms, what would you do either to better support your own um, establishment or to just make the outcomes better for kids overall?
1: I've, yeah, I often get asked, what would I do if I'm Prime Minister for a day, which I have a feeling is where this question leads to. Uh, and my, but my personal outcome, first and foremost, is we have to give students a better understanding of Indigenous education. I know it's completely outside of the topic we're talking about, but... I feel like that's something that's really missing in education generally. Now, I spent six years in New Zealand uh, in primary school. I learnt Maori. I learnt the cultural stories uh, and the stories of the Maori that they shared and how islands were formed and how certain things happened. I know nothing of that of Australia and I'm an Australian citizen and I wish I knew more. Um, and so that for me is always like that's the first and foremost we acknowledge that they the indigenous population are the traditional owners of our land but we don't know that much about them and don't respect their culture and their stories enough and we've got to start looking at that from a school basis to change Um, so that's that's part of the things that I would do first and foremost I guess to do um, in some of the organizations I'm in I'm trying to drive some of that I would really love to see I guess, a sandbox mentality or an opportunity that new programs can be tested and made sure they're educationally relevant before they go into schools. And it allows Department of Education to trust programs that are coming in. Um, not everybody has done that. Like the, and it's I don't think we're the only ones, but not every program has gone through, how do we align this into a school curriculum? How do we align this with what's actually happening in a in the life of the school and also the life of the community we've worked really hard to do that because we think that's really really important but i've seen other programs that come in that look great on paper but the kids don't get that many outcomes out of it and it's a real shame um, that students are spending time in that type of environment that actually may be missing out on their normal classes so it'd be really great to look at how we test programs before they go into schools and then be able to support those programs that are kicking real goals um, to make sure they can create the impact that they could be doing otherwise like I'm big on project-based learning I'd love to see more schools and classrooms operate like that I'd love to see schools stop for a week and go let's just all just get the whole school to come together and and maybe segment it up into year groups maybe 7 8s and 9 10s for example but still Just go, let's focus on a topic and let's pull out all the literacy angles on a topic and uh, history angles and maths angles and science angles on a topic and just really allow students to go deep in some of these subjects they can get excited about and develop projects and develop independent learning processes because sitting down facing the front, learning or writing stuff down off a board is not engaging for a student and at no point in in their adult life are they going to be expected to sit there and do that in the job. And so we've got to look at how students solve problems and make things happen and look at new ways of doing things because that's what they're expected to do. And so they've got to push the boundaries of what they're being taught. And we've got to have teachers and, and schools that are really confident in allowing those opportunities and going on the journey with students to find out more. Um, I've done relief teaching in some schools and sometimes we'll actually, we'll start talking about some things and students will ask questions and we'll just spend a whole heap of time answering questions around science and exploring topics that students like, Why is it called the Goldilocks zone, for example? And we just go and have a conversation around it and get the students to really pull apart the knowledge and get excited about it. That for me, you see their eyes light up and they really engage in the topic. And students, you know, they're going to go home and talk about that. You know, they're going to remember those types of experiences. Um, And so it's really important that we create more engaging learning environments for students to really get that opportunity to, to thrive and to basically prepare themselves for what the world needs of them.
2: Yeah, I think you really touched on an important point in that, you know, this critical thinking in children needs to be established at a much earlier age. There needs to be more independent project-based learning. Um, You also mentioned that sometimes maybe there are these uh, projects that sound really good but don't actually have that much educational outcomes. So I think I want to bring a little bit of a personal anecdote in, but I feel like every high school has that motivational speaker That comes in in year 10, comes in in year 12 and is like, you know what, just anchor yourself, just believe and you know, you'll get a great job and work hard. Um, And somehow this sort of approach is consistent throughout, you know, it seems across at least Victoria. Um, What do you think about those types of things and how do those sort of projects get through where I imagine you need to show a lot more metrics, etc. to get given a chance?
1: And we we focus really hard on driving um, I guess data results out of what we do so that we can prove it back to our partners because realistically those corporate partners are looking for a return on what they're spending. We're not they're not just gifting us money. They're wanting to make sure that we actually drive outcomes not only in the education angle but also making sure that I guess we're starting to introduce the things that they're interested in as well. So and to prove that we're creating value, we need to do the data around it. Um, that specific example, I. It's not to say that I'm knocking inspirational speakers because some of them are quite good, but the idea that a student can work hard and get a job, it doesn't work like that. And unfortunately, I'm seeing lots of schools that still do a lot of career training and getting students ready for one job. Students don't have one job anymore. Like I've got probably five or six different industry projects on my desk at once. I have to be able to jump across tourism. Uh, I've got got a tourism one. I've got an entertainment one. I'm working with, obviously, two or three communities around regional economic development. I'm working with something in local government. Um, yesterday, I met with businesses that were animal sales. Uh, I met with a business that were like... That's that's day-to-day for, for me. But realistically, the world that young people are stepping into says they're going to change jobs on a regular basis. Um, and that scares me that schools still talk about a like single career. I think there's not too many industries left beside maybe health and education, where you do have a job for life and you do stay in that one career. Everywhere else, people are jumping left and right and bringing other industry experiences to the table because those industries require and can benefit from that skill set shift and those other industries coming in. And so that's always something that concerns me is that we still talk about how do we develop you for your one career? How do we set a career goal for you? You're not going to have a career goal you're not gonna stay in that same industry unless you're doing something amazing or maybe starting your own business. But even in that, those serial entrepreneurs, they won't even stay in one industry. They'll start a business, think they've conquered that um, or set up something that can do that. And then they'll move on to the next thing because that's that's how they work. And that's how all of us uh, have to basically go through this world now. And so we've got to create opportunities for students to learn how they can jump from opportunities and make things happen instead of just work hard. on that one thing you wanna do, that's gonna make a difference doesn't work like that anymore and unfortunately we're setting them up to fail by telling them that's the case
0: and just bringing back to a couple of more questions around education um in terms of like we see obvious disparity between funding and resources in like private and public schools and what do you think of the solution to that problem is it a matter of more funding to public schools or is it the fact that even with funding you can't you won't be able to necessarily address some of the inequities in these systems
1: education at the moment still is is that we are only tweaking at the edges. If we actually seriously sat down and said, let's build a scratch a school from scratch for the 21st century, it wouldn't look anything like what we've got at the moment. Uh, but we are going, well, we already have classrooms, we already have bells, we already have teachers, we already have this, this and this, so we'll just change one thing. Uh, and that for me is, is, I think that's the bigger discussion to have. What does a school look like in our modern world and how do we create that environment without actually having to sit there and keep going back to the schools that we used to have because the schools that we used to have prepared for the world we used to have and we know that doesn't exist anymore. Um, so that's, that's sort of where I often come from with that. I I actually find in public schools that there are some really passionate teachers and that's not to say there are passionate teachers in the private system but often the teachers that are going to some of those harder schools, they really want to basically sow into the opportunity that's there. So... I think it is about sort of looking at how do we support that investment to make sure that 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 basically the barrier isn't a financial barrier that's stopping those opportunities. But my bigger thing is that we've actually got to look at what does a school look like for the modern world? Uh, and actually, let's do that. And how do we basically transform our whole system instead of just tweaking at the edges of a system that may not be preparing students for what they should be doing?
0: And why do you think uh, uh, the fact that, you know, schools are foreign, so behind it. you said, you know, the old school system was for the old world. Why haven't we been able to make that jump yet? What stopped it?
1: Because the way we prepare students and the world that they're working in are often seen as two isolated things. Uh, students are students, they're young people, we've got to basically look after them and, and that sort of stuff. And I, I don't mean that in a derogatory way, but we often, I guess, you're in school, you've got to do this, you've got to do that. Not actually go, wait a minute, well, let's treat you like an adult. What do you actually want to achieve? And what do you want to make happen? I can tell you that all of our learning environments that we create and illuminate that don't have bells associated with them, students still eat recess and lunch. They just may not all have it at once, and that's okay. Because go and find me a workplace where everybody downs tools or downs gets steps away from their computer for half an hour to have a break. Uh, so I think that like that's that's that sort of thought process that we've actually got to go. We've got to start valuing what a school can create and how it does actually prepare students for that world. And um, I think and it's it's gonna take something a little bit radical that actually will shift that to happening. And you see some schools in the US that are doing it outside of the, the normal model, but it's really hard to move a whole system. When you look at how many schools, how many teachers, how much how big of a system that is it's not gonna be easy to shift. And that's probably part of the problem is, is that it's evolving at a pace that it can evolve. Um, and maybe that's part of the barrier is that we have set up a system where a state public system is designed to be that you can go to any school, technically you can go to any school in the state or even in the country now with a national curriculum, and you should be getting pretty much the same learning. That shows me that the whole system has to move at once to be able to make that change, not. And that's probably where some private schools have been a little bit more agile and driven some great outcomes. But realistically, we've got to look at, majority of students are in the public system, so we have to put our focus at the public system. Um, I feel like I've answered a lot more than what you actually asked me, but I hope that helps.
0: No, it helps a perfect, lot. Yeah. No,
1: I
2: really appreciate the clarity and the insight you've got in that area. So what I wanted to ask actually, so we mentioned all the things we keep mentioning the high schools needs to do. You could perhaps argue that maybe university uh, touches on them a little bit more. So what are your thoughts on the uni system? Do you think university is a great equalizer? It used to be, I mean, the stats still show that, but do you feel that university does
1: enough to make up for that skills gap from high school or, you know, et cetera? Um, I think universities are looking at more experiential opportunities. Um, you still do have the challenge in the job market that uh, an employer wants to see experience plus qualification. and the university system is structured that you spend full time studying so you get your qualification, that's awesome, but you don't get as much time to work on the experience. Uh, and that's where we've got to start adapting around that. I've seen some fantastic universities around the world that do great things in partnership with their community and create that outreach, which is obviously creates a, a fantastic opportunity for learning. But universities are I find are still built around a, a two, three year program. Like I started architecture and didn't want I kind of lost my passion as I went through it. Uh, but I still completed that first degree because I wanted to commit to it and finish it. But now like I, I'm now that I'm in business, I look at some of the business units and go, oh, I'd love to just take that one unit. Uh, and, and I can't, it's a little bit impractical to do it, except I could probably just sit in the back of a classroom and, and hope. But like, that's the way learning's kind of done these days. So again, the idea that you have to spend three years in a classroom effectively learning everything you need to do, I've done some part-time, I've done part-time study as well and done it over time and that was really advantageous to see, um, to be able to balance work and and the learning but actually starting to work in that space as well and that was really useful but how do we look at that, that someone can just pick up particular units because realistically, if they've got the experience and the knowledge and they can still say, hey, I've completed these units, employees are still going to value that. It might not all add up to a degree at the end of it because they did it over 20 years instead of over three but they've still picked up all that knowledge at the right time and would be adding on skill sets that they don't otherwise have. So that's sort of a, a big thing for me around the the uni space. So I'd love to be able to just tap into because the, the knowledge is there, the resources are there, but the ability just to do small parts of it isn't there, which could probably really create great outcomes in our community. Um, I think, yeah, otherwise unis are probably a, a model that students feel a little bit more comfortable with that they get that responsibility. but that's where I think we've got to look at what the school system and the university transition looks like. Uh, and we've worked really hard in teaching students in an adult env- environment where we don't tell them to turn up at a particular time. We give them a schedule. They just have to be in the room at a particular time. That session starts. If they're not in the room, they miss out on the content. That's their bad luck. Sometimes it's the first time that they're experienced being told, well, you didn't turn up on time. That's not acceptable. Um but that's what uni's like. And so we've got to look at that transition. If students really do sort of come into their own two or three years down the track at uni, then how do school students start to experience that early? Because often that first six weeks for students is a really hard transition because nobody's telling them where to be when. Uh, and that sort of environmental shift, we've got to look at how all of learning kind of works together and, and prepare students to be in that working world. So yeah, I think there's a lot of things that universities can do. Um, I've got the benefit of working with a few and have some fantastic conversations around this because um, I think there are some great opportunities. They've got some great knowledge, great resources, great facilities. We've just got to look at ways that more people can use them to get the ben- the maximum benefit for our community and our economy.
2: No, fair enough, and I think like, yeah, couldn't agree any more. Um, so basically, I think we're just about to wrap up. Um, just before we finish things, um, is there anything else you'd like to add? And if not, uh, are there any books or films or any form of media you'd recommend for young people who you know, want to make a difference?
1: Um, I feel like we've talked about a lot of different things, and you've asked some fantastic questions, so I really appreciate that. Um, I think in terms of young people who really want to go out there and make a difference um just go and meet people and talk to them that's a big thing um, one of the really interesting things we've just finished with an entrepreneur in residence here in uh, in our co-working space here in Launceston and one of the things he talked about is entrepreneurs create entrepreneurs so if you if, if there are people that are listening that are really keen to make things happen or really want to refine what they're doing even if they are doing great things go and seek out a mentor or an entrepreneur that can actually journey alongside you and buy them coffee chat with them More often than not, people are very willing to share their experiences and and hear what other people are doing as well to add value so you can get that wisdom. So, like, yeah, there's, like, lots of great books out there, but I must say the biggest thing I value is the conversations I get to have with my mentor. uh, And I'm trying to actually look at adding some more to my skill set as I start to look for new opportunities that uh, can value add to what I'm doing both personally and professionally. Um, I guess one of the best books that I've ever read if you're building teams and trying to make change is there's um, Daniel Pink's book Drive um, is absolutely fantastic on building teams and driving engagement Um, it's yeah two-thirds of the book is the book and then the Last third are like all the cliff notes that you kind of need when you need to start talking to other people around it, Uh, even tweetable versions of each chapter so you can at least understand the core messages. But it is a really great book on what drives people, what helps people engage, and as people are looking to drive change. Realistically, you have to drive change and make it a movement and get other people on board. Otherwise, they aren't going to go there with you. Um, And even any business, you have to be doing that. People have to go on the journey with you and support you through thick and thin to really make great things happen and that book gave me a lot of fantastic insights and it's one of them that's on the bookshelf here at our co-working space that we always are sharing out with people just to uh, to pick it up and to grab and to learn from because there's some fantastic insights. So, that's probably one of the best books I've read but I do have a quite a large pile of books sitting beside my bed. I, I consider myself to be an aspirational reader that I may not finish them that well. Uh, and I often carry books around with me, especially when I travel, because I, yeah, spend I spent 20 weeks on the road this year so far um, going to communities across Australia. And so I'll carry a book with me. I won't get much time to read them, but it's there, so I can read it if I want to. But for me, it's the conversations and the people you meet. Like, don't ever undervalue that. Go networking events. Go to events when speakers come to town so you can meet people in the audience. Just... Do what you can to get out there and, and just really learn from those people who are doing it. They might be younger than you. They might be older than you. I'm only 29, so I've still got a long way to go, and I still really value learning from people who are younger and older than me just to add that experience and skill set so I can keep doing really cool things.
2: Yeah, oh, excellent. Um, Look, here at Lantern, we like to think that we're maybe little entrepreneurs as well, so you've been very inspirational to us and almost made it a little bit more bite-sized and approachable, so we'd just like to say thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Thank you so much for listening to our 16th and final episode from Lantern Series 1. And once again, that was Adam Mostogel. If you're interested in finding out more about the work that Adam does with Illuminate Education and Consulting, then please do check out their website at illuminateeducation.com.au. If you did enjoy the show, please leave us a review on iTunes because it really does help us grow and get these amazing people's stories out to the rest of the world. As we mentioned at the start, this was our last episode of season one. And we would really appreciate your feedback on the podcast so we can make sure that we can come back stronger than ever with season two and deliver the content that you all want to hear. You can find the survey at bit.ly forward slash lantern underscore survey. Once again, bit.ly forward slash lantern underscore survey. It has been an amazing journey over season one, and I think we've gone to speak to some really inspiring and interesting people along the way. We really hope you enjoyed listening as much as we enjoyed creating these episodes. We're so happy that you joined us for our first part of our journey, and we hope you follow us to our next step in creating a global launchpad for youth-led social impact. Until next time, stay awesome.